Welcome to Keeping Up With Data. Keeping Up With Data is the podcast that keeps data enthusiasts up to speed with what is happening in the data world. We bring in the leading minds from the data industry to talk all things career, news, embarrassing stories, failures and successes. So something really important for us here at Precision Sourcing is mental health. It's something we've been focused on a lot over the last year or so. And we're lucky enough to have partnered with the Black Dog Institute. And we're going to be doing a lot of events with them this year. A lot of our events and money will be going towards them. And they're out there aiming to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. So if you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link in the bio on this podcast. And you'll be seeing a lot more information about Black Dog over the next year. Welcome to another episode of Keeping Up With Data. I'm Emily. This is Sean. And we've got a very special guest today, Mark Fazakali. But I'm not going to give you an intro. <laughs> you can introduce yourself, so take it away. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'm a misplaced New Zealander. I've been here 24 years, roughly. Um, so for all of those 24 years and a few years before that in New Zealand, I've been involved in the data, analytics, um, BI space, always on the vendor side. Well, nearly always on the vendor side. Started off as a software developer many, many moons ago. So in the last 24 years, I've been with many of the mega vendors. I've worked for Oracle, Hyperion, MicroStrategy, a bunch of companies in the uh, in that space, uh, which has been a, an interesting ride. Awesome. And right now, I'm uh, I run the uh, Click business across Australia and New Zealand. We I came to the business through the acquisition of Talend, mm-hmm. which uh, completed earlier this year, where I'd been the, the manager there for a few years. So. Yeah, really interesting times. Bit of an evolution. Absolutely. Big brands evolution. as well. And interesting that you've come from a development background as well. Maybe we'll start there. Sure. Because obviously that's really helpful for someone being in a really pivotal sales role yeah. and it, legacy sort of. Absolutely. Brand. I think um, when I started, I was uh, developing in a, uh, a New Zealand object-oriented language. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, that's sort of how I got into BI. They Back in those days, in the dim, dark recesses of time, if you wanted to report, your options were few. It was typically you create a, a form in your development environment or you might have embedded something like Crystal Reports, which was mm-hmm. big back in those days, or possibly you know, you may have a relationship with the, the back then the Cognos and business objects of the world were sort of the only real names around. Um, and the term business intelligence didn't even exist. Yeah. It was all about you know reporting and dashboards. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's how I sort of found myself in BI. I discovered I was much better with, the, with developing the reports than I was as a software developer, ironically. Did I also read something that you were on a sales floor of like a, was it a retail or a menswear brand? Correct, and then, I was. It was. I started my career even further back in the recess time <laughs> as, a, uh, as a menswear salesman. Yeah, exactly. Sales is in your blood, yeah. So, look, you, it, it does seem to be the case. Yeah, yeah awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, obviously you're at Click now, the evolution of yeah. many big brands before that and acquisition like you mentioned. So what's Click up to at the moment? Maybe we could start there with sort sure. of where you're at. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Click's on a journey to, you know, to be the uh, the independent platform of choice across everything from sort of the the disc, if you like, to the, to the pane of glass. I mean, the only bit in there that we don't do really in that journey is we don't have our own database because I mean, why would you? Mm-hmm. you know, this, well, it's got plenty of databases, yeah. and with Snowflake around, you're in a, in a you know no-win proposition there anyway. Mm-hmm. Many of the other hyperscalers. So what Talon brought to uh, Click was a um, very mature 
uh, data ingestion, data governance, um, data integration tool that mm -hmm. fleshed out uh, many of the gaps that Click perceived in that, you know, um, disk to screen vision. Mm. And ironically, of course, Click had a lot of the bits that Talon didn't have. So the overlap actually was very, very small. The mm. two companies fitted together like two pieces of a puzzle. And it, was, it was quite interesting as I came on board to see how well we did fit. Yeah. yeah. How does the transition with a company, two companies so big, yeah, merge together? How does how well, does it my uh, my third or fourth acquisition? I got hot bought into Oracle back in the late noughties. Um, but it, look, it goes as they all do. This is probably a little more problematic because yeah. the companies are more equivalent in size. When Oracle buys you, you know they roll in with their templates, and it's like this is how you're going to operate from there on, and you don't really get to say no. Mm. Yeah, it's not really an option. It's a single point of contact for as, as a term you use for a reason, right? So, yeah. so Click is uh, consolidated around a, a single go-to-market strategy and, and, and offers that wide portfolio through a, a, a single um, point of contact. So, yeah, it's an interesting place to be. Yeah, and I suppose like from a Click standpoint, like you said, you guys have a very broad offering, and obviously, maybe I'm massively assuming here, but Click is seen as a viz tool just to a lot of yeah, data people. Right. So. How are you guys on the cusp of that AI journey? Yeah, well, I mean, Click's been doing AI for quite a long time, actually. Yep. I mean, we all know AI is not new. It's been around since the 1940s. Mm. Um, in its current form, you know, what's popular at the moment is Gen AI, Generative AI. What we have been embedding for quite some years into our platform now is the ability to ask natural language questions, utilizing, mm. a, you know, backend that supports that and in fact you know when a some information is presented to an interface there's an option to say what insights can i can you tell me like, mm. tell me what's going on with a lot of people say, well what's the context of the data and it's difficult to deliver context to people particularly if they're not subject matter experts mm. um, and so having that capability to not only um, deliver some context but learn from the things that are most interesting so we have a machine learning algorithm in there that works out what the people are asking about mm -hmm. um, and thus serves up accordingly. So we've been doing that for quite some time. So uh, we, we see ourselves sitting in as, um, you know, making use of the tool mm -hmm. in an appropriate way for the audience that uh, that we typically serve, mm -hmm. usually decision makers somewhere in the business. Yeah, okay. Got yeah. But it's, it's it's kind of interesting, do you say, because, um, you know, you're right, Click is a, a data biz tool and I'm... Mm -hmm. You know, in a few, the last few years, it's perhaps, along with a lot of the data viz tools, has become um, a little bit below the surface, if you like. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the days of the the uh, big shootouts between mega vendors over who's going to win the, you know, the reporting and visualization platform at you know, BHP or you know, pick, yeah. pick mm -hmm. the mega company, they've all kind of been and gone. Mm -hmm. um, we have a huge customer base in the Australian New Zealand region, some really monster sites. But yeah, we, we you go in and start to talk about data integration, they'll get you know, hold on, aren't you the data biz gone? It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But we got this too. <laughs> yeah, you must see that, Sean, because Sean does more of the BI sort of recruitment, right. yeah, and yeah. then I sit in the data science space, which obviously runs like I suppose intertwined yeah. anyways. But yeah, yeah, you've obviously got your Microsoft, you've got your exactly, you've got your Power BI guys, then you've got your Tableau guys. They had the big Salesforce boom a yep. couple of years yep. back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Click, f from my side of things, wouldn't be as in demand, but keen to see how you guys are going <laughs> to elevate that with AI and come in. Well, I, you know, I think if you look at um, 
you know, I, I think I've been to a lot of conferences in the back half of the year, and as you can imagine, mm. pretty much, you know, AI, I think one of them was giving away sort of like AI bingo, you know, see how many times you can say Gen AI. And <laughs> yeah. But there's been some very interesting things come out of that, and, and I think the future that most people see is uh, using AI to augment, uh, you know, human workers. Like, we can automate people, we already do that, mm. robotic process automation, we... we at any of the tasks that can be automated, in my experience, are people jobs that people don't want to do anyway. Mm. It's that boring, mundane, horrible jobs that somebody has to do. So, mm. you know, all we're doing is elevating the uh, capacity for uh, higher value work in the organisation. Mm. And so if you can use AI to, to then augment that higher value work, you're getting the best of both worlds. You know, mm. you're getting those nasty jobs that nobody wants to do, like rekeying a spreadsheet. Or something like that. Yeah, you know, yeah, writing some copy for the next yeah. day. It's like, oh, really? Like, yeah. Um, and instead, you get the AI giving you some input on what it is you're doing, or looking for, or looking at. Yeah. yeah. Just going slightly off topic. Um, well, not off topic, but still definitely very related. You mentioned the the RPA side of things. Yeah. Uh, I seen you with Blue Prism. I did. I did a couple of years on Blue Prism. And I joined. The, I think I was a third or fourth person on the ground here, and they had. Yeah. I think we had 187 in the world, and when I left, it was about 2,000 people. Yeah, <laughs> that was back in there. The long, I think you joined. When was it? 2017. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's when I first started my recruitment journey, and Blue Prism was the RPA front and center. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it was a big one back then on the RPA front, but it slightly pushed. Well, and so, the, the, you know, RPA helps a lot in mm. those kind of tasks. And at the time, I saw some um, terrific use cases come out of Telstra and NAB and Qantas and that, mm. you know, made genuine differences to the way they were doing business. Um, mm. But then when you step out of the outs that, that world, you realize that it really is just a Band-Aid yeah. um, mm. for a proper integration strategy. Because mm. part of an overall integration strategy is great, but really you're still just replacing that um, that quite fragile human process. So when I came over here, it was just like RPA big yeah, place for me back in 2017, but it's just gone off the grid now. It has a bit, yeah. yeah tangents but coming back to ai because obviously you've run counting how many times people can say ai AI. but like i suppose how can you like from your perspective what about like with the boom how can you create sort of long lasting um ai strategies across anz because and as any business maybe an enterprise scale because that's where we're at yeah great question i think um for ai specifically i I think you really have to be ready for change because Mm. it's no, but it is the um, uh, the embodiment of you know agility, if you like, in terms of iterative development. I mean, every few days they're consuming more data, more information. As more data becomes available, mm. models get refined. So capabilities are going to continue to grow. Mm. Um, I think the you know that the when I was back in the pre-dinosaur days doing my training and. <laughs> Software. I mean, the, the term garbage in, garbage out is a truism that remains even more true. And in mm. fact, in the RPA days, as much as it is now for AI, it's incredibly important that the data foundation that you're using to um, feed into these processes is, you know, trustworthy, accurate, rock solid, you know, where it's been, what's been done mm. to it. And it's sort of the gold standard, if you like. Yeah. Because the thing that automation does is it has, you know, whether it be AI, automation or RPA, it, it has the capacity to go horribly wrong at speed across a whole lot of places mm-hmm. if you make a poor decision. And and I have seen that occur in an RPA implementations where mm-hmm. 
realise that there's been a poor data stream come in and suddenly all decision making, particularly if they're using, as many of them may well do, some of the earlier capabilities around, uh, you know, image recognition, handwriting recognition and things like that. Mm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, so, so I think that's re really a, what I think what folks need to focus on is, you know, you may only be building a cottage now in your business, but you should build a foundation for a skyscraper because it's going to get big. So you put that solid base in, it doesn't matter how big or small it gets on top of it. And, and that fundamentally relies on an architecture that has capacity to plug data in and out uh, at will and, and also to measure the veracity of the data because it's, it's so important. That was going to be my question, actually, is like, the, like you said, the architecture needs to be like rock solid. But how come so many people get it so wrong? Yeah. Like if everyone, well, not everyone, I'm assuming, but you just said it, it's obvious it needs to be done right. Like, where does the disconnect? It's the hype, isn't it? Everybody wants yeah. to jump straight on the track. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember when um, data lakes and big data were first a thing. Yeah. And you'd have all these, I think I was at Oracle at the time, I remember. You had people ring up saying, oh, I need to get me some big data. You go, okay. Well, what? Well, Harvard Business Review said it's going to change the world, so I need me some of that. Yeah. Like, oh, right, it's really strategic then, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think AI is a little bit like that right at the moment. There's yeah. a, you know, there's a lot of talk about it and a lot of you know, being used in a lot of places. Yeah. But we don't really necessarily have line of sight as to where it's going to fit into many large enterprises. Mm. Um, there are some really unusual use cases coming up in companies that, you sort of don't think about why, well, that, that that's a, a, an unusual way to approach it. But again, it's really about how do I help free up our workforce to do mm. another thing. Interesting, yeah. It's also like managing risk and their complexity. Yeah. Starts with governance, doesn't it? Yeah. Day one, really. Well, very true. And, and you know, we've had some pretty high-profile data leaks in the last couple of years, and <laughs> particularly after the Optus one, the phone rang hot around data governance, mm. and the Latitude one as well because they had data that was so old, mm. 17 years old. I mean, you have no right to hold data that long. So I'm like, how did this even happen? Mm. Well, you've got no governance, clearly, to say this needs to be deleted on you know such and such a day. Yeah. Um, and so our phone rang hot. <laughs> but data governance is a bit like... Uh, MDM hasn't been in its day and, and, and some of these um, other initiatives that are really not technology products. Mm. Technology facilitates them, but the project itself is about organisational change and they are hard. Mm. And not many organisations have the appetite, in all honesty, to actually follow right through on that. They usually mm. start, have a crack, a little bit of way and go, oh my God, and the guy who started it said, yeah, I'm adding up this amount. You know? yeah. <laughs> and so it becomes problematic. You know? yeah. So... To your question, how do you make sure it uh, has some longevity? I think it's it's just got to be able to be, you know, if you like, uh, s solid foundations, resilience to plug things in and out as they, mm. as they go. Like a concrete slab in a building. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and make sure you can pull the building down easy and put a bigger <laughs> one up or a new one. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay, got you. What about like the, uh, I suppose, at scale and like managing the risks and complexity, but then... You mentioned change there a couple of times. Mm. I suppose like we don't see a lot of like change manager roles come through that are like specific for that. Like, then I think there's a gap in the market for that kind of skill set to manage change on big data programs like that. Yeah. So do you see like a gap there yourself? Uh, interesting you say that. No, I, I can't say I've necessarily seen it. Um, 
other than, you know, as a vendor representative in 24 years, I've seen more data projects than anybody that doesn't work for a vendor will ever see. So mm-hmm. most people in their career might do, you know, a dozen, half a dozen or a dozen yeah. projects. Mm-hmm. Most companies sort of similar. As a vendor, I get to see lots of them, some of them yeah. more than once, mm-hmm. which is the interesting bit. Um, and I think that that, that that really is a massive gap in how do we make sure that this wonderful thing we have prepared and presented and are now going to have to roll out, that everybody's ready for it and knows what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And what's more, how does that endure more than you know six or nine or 12 months? How does that keep going? And I think years ago we'd talk about centres of excellence and I think mm. most of those have sort of fallen into disfavour because they've proved to be yeah. difficult you know, to make mm-hmm. them work. A bit yeah. like the MDM project I just talked about, yeah. a lot harder than they look. Yeah, um, so you need so a champion in the business, like don't you? Someone who's going to really drive, yeah, be like the go-to person and is dedicated to it, rather than yeah. I think um, you know if we look at how some organisations are rolling out sort of agile frameworks and taking on board, you know, utilising um, chapter leads and mm. you know preserving the craft. I mean, it's sort of going in that similar direction, but it's much more decentralised. And much more holistic in its views. A COE, COE by its nature is sort of a elitist structure, if you mm-hmm. like. Whereas agile development is, by definition, in fact, um, all about democratisation of work. Like mm. you all decide what's highest priority, and you go do that. And I think um, I think that's going a long way to help, and uh, particularly in the data world. Anyway, I can't really speak to other parts. Of yeah, business. yeah, um, yeah. I feel like the change side. I don't know if it's kind of like what the analogy of like you've let a kid get away with murder for ages and then you come in and you try and change something, they're always going to go back to like what they've been doing or the misbehaving. Um, so yeah, I can see that as a, a challenge for a lot of people at the moment. You said, um, I suppose you, you've seen it a couple of times, that reminded me of a bit of technology debt that we talked yeah. about. Like I'd be keen to see or hear what you've seen. That's an interesting question. There's a lot of technology debt um, still around, of course. We have, you know, mainframes still running most Mm. of the banks. Mainframes running a lot of the uh, government payment systems. I mean, there's still one of the only mainframes in the world still running out of uh, out of Canberra Centrelink payments. I'm 32 of them left in the world. That particular particular mainframe. Um, Wow. So, and then on the other side of that is how do we avoid so, so, you know, obviously at some point they become superseded, but we are way past lifetime already on many of those things. Mm. So the technology debt there is is huge and that's mm. not going to be easily replaced. What I find or what I'm seeing at the market at the moment is um, companies still creating more legacy debt. I mean, I think one of the key use cases that's coming out of um, AI, I guess, in the software world is that, potential to augment development capabilities and to be able to, you know, create um, code bases and document them and so forth, which is fantastic because code bases are notoriously difficult to document and developers are notoriously lazy. I know I was, you know, and, and you only got to look at what's going on and, you know, as I say, in the mainframes, you know, millions of lines of code, who knows what half of them does, a lot of mm. people don't, Yeah, you know, spaghetti code. And when I see organizations say, oh, well, we're going to bring a bunch of coders in and use, you know, X, Y, Z language to develop, they go like, why would you do that? There are so many no-code, low-code options available for almost anything you want to do now mm. that, um, 
you know, building an ivory tower, running 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 developers. I'm just not sure why you do that unless you're in a development house. And so when I hear companies say, oh, you know, we're not going to buy that. We're going to hand code it in Python or DBT or something. I was like, good luck to you. Do you think that, that the DBTs of this world and the airflows and those type yeah. of guys, that's just going to be like another repeat of maintenance? Absolutely. Is. Generation? Absolutely. I mean, DBT code doesn't maintain itself. It's not auto-maintaining yeah. auto and updating uh, yeah. or glue or any of those sort of low-level languages. So, yeah. I mean, it's a good... You know, it has it definitely. There's a lot of companies that see um, great utility in that kind of flexibility, and far be it for me to decry that because there are many use cases where you have to write code. Yeah, totally. But when you don't have to, and I'm not sure why you would choose to, other than you want to create a development capability mm. for some reason, yeah, often political. Yeah. 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 What would you say, like, the maybe top three things that you come across day in, day out that you're just like, Face palm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of them. Okay. <laughs> people people still decide they're going to hand code stuff. Like, yeah. I, I don't get it. And I just don't get it. You can have a beautiful graphical design tool. Look, and the, some of it comes back to um, arcane knowledge of the wizards of IT, you know. Yeah. We want to keep this arcane knowledge to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so that's definitely one. Mm. Um, I think, that, you know, that probably one of the, the, the second things I think is. You, when we talked about it, is you know how do we plan well in advance for what's going to happen? Because we know that in two or three years, there'll be a full iteration of people probably within an organisation that are on any given project. So how do we make sure that project endures beyond that? Um, so lack of forward planning in that perspective, which is, I guess, kind of tied into the change management side of mm. it as well. And then third, I think, is um, an overabundance of caution at the moment in the marketplace, particularly right now. Yeah. Uh, and look, everybody's got to be cautious. We talk about risk. You don't want to jump in and, and um, make hasty decisions. But, you know, if we look at AI, for instance, there's a lot of people sort of hanging back and go, oh, let's wait and see what happens. Like, well, you don't actually need to do that. Mm-hmm. Nothing will happen. But what you do need to do is get your house in order first. Yeah. You know, and there's two or three fundamental things about AI where you need to understand. One is it can only decide on the data you give it. Two is it doesn't know when it's lying and it can't tell when it's not telling you the truth. Yeah. And at some point, maybe we may train it to do that. And at that point, then we worry about Skynet probably. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's such a good uh, so, so, you know, that, that risk aversion in, in, in the market mm. is um, very high at the moment uh, to the point that I think organize you know if we look at um how many times we're seeing the big gsis being called in to assist in decision making mm. i mean we all know why that is it's because nobody there really wants to be responsible for it they want to blame pick the gsi they and they recommended it yeah. and it's uh, ultimately why that path is adopted i think as well as yeah. to inform them of course or their options they may not mm. be aware of yeah. yeah, we're seeing that as well, aren't we? Like the, the caution in yeah. the market is just like next le- it is, level. It is next level. And it always is around this time of year, just generally in recruitment and in the data space, but it's still bubbles. But at the moment, everyone's like, oh, should we? I don't know. Let me ask this fifth person before I make a decision. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah. It's, so that, I mean, normally, where's the time of year when uh, most software vendors dread because typically customers have been working 
feverishly to complete an RFI or an RFB mm. and toss it over the fence in the next few weeks and so we want that back in January. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Some questions of that. Yeah. And everybody goes, oh my God, there goes my leave. You know? Yeah. This is so we've seen a couple of those, but last year it was very quiet. I mean, I think last year it was, um, and the software world was a particularly quiet year for most vendors. Yeah. yeah okay. Got you. What about, um, I was interested from the sales angle because like we've always, we're not really done historically pre-sales or sales recruitment from a data perspective just because yeah. we tend to go really niche but like do you have any advice for someone who is really strong background technically but interested to go into that sales sort of realm that has that maybe gravitas yeah. that they could build on i mean you've got to be you've got to be two-fifths show, um, show pony you're gonna have a chat after this yeah. <laughs> i mean i went into pre-sales from software development um which was an easy transition, yeah. and anybody who knows me will tell you that I'm at least two-fifths show pony. Um, so, so that was quite easy for me. But yeah. um, you know, and then that transition to sales, well, as you highlight it, it turns out it's kind of been in my genes since day one. I think my mother said I should either be a lawyer or a salesman. So, I think she's happy that I ended up in sales, not law. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think you know the advice would be. Um, you know, if you're going into a pre-sales role, I mean, you, you've got to put aside some of those preconceptions about what I'm doing must work and must be like it's smoke and mirrors 90% of it because mm. we're just doing something on the fly for these people. Mm. So be prepared to let go of that mindset that says, you know, this has got to be production ready. You need to have like, you've obviously came from a software development background. Yeah. If someone is midway through their career and is thinking of that switch on both sides of the table, so you've mm. got maybe a sales guy who doesn't have a tech background, on the flip side, you've got the tech background guy who wants to jump into sales. Which one do you think has a better... I mean, tech to sales, for sure. Tech to sales. Trying to make a developer out of a salesman, yeah, if like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a rarity. A, trying to make yeah. a cat into a dog there, I think, you know? It's just <laughs> oh not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it's much easier to go the other way because as having that technical, you know, the technical understanding of clients needs and what's possible means that you can potentially you know i mean at the end of the day most software categories today have multiple players in them very few of them are not commoditized to some extent mm. and so the way people can differentiate is by either their sales you know their product obviously first and foremost but in many categories that's really difficult to differentiate now it's the blue one or the red one or the green one they all do pretty much the same mm. how are you going to choose yeah, and so what you're left with is well, we've got to provide a better experience. I've got a, I'm recruiting for a role at the moment for yeah. one role. I had 97 applicants in yeah. the sales role, which is just insane. Yeah, and some of them I look at the resumes and go, "Did you read my ad? I mean, seriously, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, is that just a? Have you got some RPA replying to you? <laughs> Probably. But out of that, you have some real gems. I mean, there's some fantastic people on the market because you know the market slowed down in the last year. Pretty much every large or every vendor's had layoffs. Many of the smaller companies have folded up shop on Australia and pulled back. So yeah, that's a bit. So, yeah, like definitely that. that that capacity for integrity and authenticity is very important. Yeah, you can't do the cold calling like, "Do you want a job?" Okay, cool, bye. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. do you want yeah. my shiny yeah. dash? Got a job? What do yeah. you got? You got a job? What do you got? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we've had a lot with that. our clients as well. Like the conversion sure. rate yeah. between applicants to interviews is just so low. Because it's like, I suppose, mass amount of people on the market, which is 
a shame. What about for you? Obviously, your team, like you've already mentioned, you're recruiting. If someone's mm. listening right now, what can they sort of expect coming in under your leadership, into your team, the culture? Yeah, great question. Um, look, I think for me, you know, I've been in leadership roles now for, um, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Mm. And I always sort of try and bring the same thing to it all. And one of those is that there's no dark corners. So, like, you know, full, full transparency of everything's going on to the team. Um, you know, from my perspective, I don't want to hire somebody I've got to handhold indefinitely clearly i mean nobody wants that but yeah. i mm-hmm. and i do not want to be a micromanager that is just not my thing i hate it i hate doing it um <laughs> hate seeing it so that's not me um so you know i think we've got to and i often describe my role to team members that put myself as, as a as a shield mm-hmm. uh, and and i use another word to describe that as something else shield um, <laughs> <laughs> And, I, you know, because I, I think what what the role of what, you know, as country manager, I'm essentially a middle manager. So I need to both shield my manager who runs, you know, APAC, five, mm-hmm. five big busy geographies. So I need to manage all of that stuff. Mm. So that he only hears the important noise. Yeah. And also make, need to make sure that my team is in somewhat uh, insulated from, you know, his noise because sometimes sales leaders get very noisy and the further you get away from the cold place mm. when you're a sales leader um the less empathy you have for the sales guy and mm. at the cold face you know it's like just get it done i don't have, know how just get it done and yeah. you slam the phone down and your three <laughs> levels of reporting down it's like oh, you know, how am i going to do that and i mean i have sat in a lobby and stalked people for meetings in days gone by <laughs> um so in my team, I encourage, you know, collaboration, mm. uh, openness. We put up everybody's results on screen. We have a, a weekly all hands, um, very short, sharp all hands meeting. So everybody knows what's going on. Mm. Uh, open door policy. And yeah, let's try to be authentic. There we go again. Yeah, it's your Kiwi background probably. Well, Maybe I'm biased. No. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we say it how it is, good or bad. Yeah, exactly. I'm as wizzy wig as you get. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of different topics like tech debt, Gen AI, the boom, how to like mitigate risk or manage risk, I should say, embrace the complexity, um, obviously click in yourself and your journey and sales team as well. Um, was there anything else that you would want to say or cover at this point that well I, I think the you know since our focus is on AI mm. sort of in this podcast I think you know my advice to organizations considering it is just get in and have a play get mm. in and do it there's actually very little risk in starting off a small experiment now there's yep. no risk but before you do that make sure your data is in order I think that if you you know, Gardner have got up uh, the three most important things to have to be AI ready and, and be having your data AI ready is number one. Hmm. So I think, you know, get in there, build that big foundation, put a little cottage on at the start, crank the handle a few times, see what happens. Good analogy there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. You don't need a mansion, you just need a small cottage. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Any parting words from you, Sean? I've uh, a lot to think of right now. Um, I suppose my final one would be click. Where, where do you see yourselves going with the AI boom? Like, what yeah, and thing two or five years look like? Yeah, so I think you'll just see us and integrating it more and more into the available capabilities. So, mm-hmm. like I said, we we already 
you know, you can already use, uh, integrate any of the Gen AI um, uh, APIs directly into the interface of our, our, our dashboards and so forth. And so I think what we'll see is just a continuing refinement of that and the machine learning aspect of it. Mm. Um, I think how we surface that to the pane of glass is one thing, but I think the other thing that is how do we use it more intelligently in our data journey from the disk to the consumer. Mm. And there's a lot of op lot of areas in there that are currently automated, but a lot of those areas also require you know human intervention to make calls. And I think there's opportunity for automation, more automation through that part of the process, or more. AI capacity mm. um, to make sure that's happening in the right way. Yeah. So you don't think it, obviously some people are going around, it's a race against time at the moment, but as you said at the start, it's not just start. No. And yeah. Actually, you know, just have a, have a crack. Though. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's not that hard. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks Mark. Thank you. For your thanks time. for having me. Yeah, it was a chat. Very, very okay. interesting.